can we think about the win-win? What do we all want here? Oh, we all want the family to have a good time. Oh, we all want the family to bond. How could we make that happen? Hey everyone, it's Christine and this is the Rose Woman Podcast and Love and Liberation. So as we move into the holidays, I have a couple of episodes coming up that are specifically about really making our time with families and beloved more focused and joyful. Today we are talking with Jess Magic on Ritual and Ceremony. I'm going to do a little bit of a, an opening talking about presence, attunement, ritual, and then we're going to get into this really delicious conversation with her. So thanks again for joining me. The podcast is brought to you by Radiant Farms, maker of psychoactive legal gummies and shoes for better living, and by Rosebud Woman, the company that I started that makes gorgeous body care and lifestyle and intimate wellness products. And again, as we approach the holiday season, I would really appreciate you taking a look at radiantfarms.us and rosewoman.com and seeing if there's anything in there that would support the people in your life as a gift. So thanks so much and onward. There's something very sacred about presence, about truly being with someone. It's more than just sitting next to them, more than just having a conversation. It's about bringing your entire being into this one moment, making it the only place you are, the only time that exists. You're not thinking about the past, you're not in the future, you're not in your own projections. And you may look into their eyes and feel what, what I've often felt is that the rest of the world just falls away and all that noise, all that chaos just fades. And there you are, two souls intertwined in an exchange that's as old as humanity itself and listening, really listening, not just with your ears, but with your heart, your spirit. And that's when you understand that every word they say is a piece of a larger story that they're trusting you to hold and sometimes that story is coming through not even the words it's in the spaces between them the pauses the way the body is moving things that you can only really perceive when you get undistracted and it's not even about empathy although you might have an empathic relationship to what your friend is saying they might have an empathic relationship to you it's about being really authentic and unguarded not performative you're, you're a participant in each other's worlds. You're not thinking about what to say next or planning. You're just there and letting what arises arise. You're so comfortable down in your soul that it can just be emergent and go at the right pace. And in that space of shared existence, something magical happens. You really can see each other and seeing and being seen as a form of love. I, I remember that movie. Remember the movie Birdie? I think it was Birdie where she's talking about attention as a form of love. Truly, truly, that is that is the case. So to give your presence to each other, you're saying without words, you matter, this moment matters, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Um, I had a friend who, he never said he was busy. His goal was to be present with each person that he was with and make them feel that he had all the time in the world for them. So it's easy to see this on an individual level, how much different it feels when you're being felt from the body, your emotions, your mind, and to practice that. But this present quality also happens in groups. And as we're coming up on uh, the gathering season, um, often some socially prescribed gathering, it happens that we might bring our presence into those groups differently, where we're coming as individuals 
each with our own thoughts and our own worries and some of us carrying baggage and stories of yesterday, but arriving in a way that we intend to be emergent and present here also, create a new kind of circle of fellowship and common ground. Now, I love circle. I love ceremony. I love circle. I love parties and the different energies that are crafted in each space. Each one is like a symphony of different energies where each person is kind of an instrument contributing to a greater melody or rhythm. And if we arrive completely present in a group, just enter and feel and notice and you know, again, not be like performative, not having an intention to achieve or accomplish something or a desired outcome, but really being in the sort of yes end and the play of it, that the group becomes an entity. It's not just about me or you, it's about us, all of us uh, here and now together. And you kind of see it craft a body And part of the intention with coming into group spaces or party spaces or ritual spaces or ceremonial spaces is like really attuning into when to speak and when to listen, when to lead, when to follow, and and being part of this murmuration. Just last weekend, I was out walking in um, San Pablo Bay near San Francisco, and it was so quiet out there, and there was you know, a ton of birds. It's like a a wildlife sanctuary. And you would notice how the birds would get very agitated. They'd get more and more agitated. And then they get up. And then all of a sudden, the whole murmuration would take off. And they would fly and they would swing back. And, you know, on the way out there, their wings were black. And as they turned the other way, it was silver reflecting in the sun. And they would make these big swoops and then kind of land collectively. And that's what we do when we come into ritual or ceremonial space or even what's available for us when we come home for the holidays. So the magic here doesn't just come from showing up. It comes from being absorbed, being willing to be part of something larger than yourself, maybe even embracing the chaos and allowing our own barriers to break down in a new way. Uh, allowing that entity of shared experience to emerge. And of course, that can be amplified by being in ceremonial or ritual containers. I write a lot about that in the reverence book, like just crafting ritual for daily life, because ritual has the advantage of bringing us more present without having to be sort of a loosey-goosey inside job that we're working on alone. It really creates a container that says, here's the rhythm, here's the pacing, here's the meal, here's the meaning. So the deliberate acts, like the ritual, carve out sacred spaces in our days. And there is a profound kind of presence that is summoned in these acts. Your ritual might be the simple act of brewing your coffee or tea, or the more elaborate rites that mark the milestones of our lives. And rituals are in a way, Suzanne Sterling says this, a way of designing energy, or conducting energy, channeling it, focusing it with our intentions. And when we move from just ritual into ceremony, then every gesture is purposeful and every element symbolic. So I want to talk a little bit about, from a religious historic perspective, religious scholar Robert Bella talks about ritual as being a form of practice that is broader than any religion, and that practice, he says, is prior to belief, and that rituals create worlds. There is a human longing for peak experience, and Bella calls it to have a 
state of consciousness that is above the fray of daily life or to experience what another religious scholar Schutz calls non-ordinary reality. And there are many reasons for ritual, the personal or tribal marking of birth and death or the acknowledgement of other kind of milestones. It could be petitions for health and well-being. It could be gratitude. It could be rituals to keep the community focused on the agreed-on path or to mark the day or to make meaning of seasons. And some are even at the cosmological level, what Bella calls cosmic maintenance, rituals that are imagined to keep the natural systems of the world working smoothly or to keep us in tune with them. But the pervasiveness of ritual across all cultures in the world also reflects a neurobiological urge to a transcendent experience, to seek and embody unity consciousness or zero stage undifferentiated consciousness. So what we describe sometimes as transcendent or spiritual experiences are kind of associated with a diminished sense of the separate self and in general with feeling more love and forgiveness and well-being and good-heartedness towards others. So through all kinds of trial and error, all these modalities of ritual uh, that have been developed over time, whether it's, it's movement, humming, chanting, singing, drumming, crying, wailing, dancing, praying, speaking into the circle, they all have ways of positively impacting our individual sense of well-being, making the community feel safer and better together. And I will tell you, although I'm not going to go into it now, that there's a lot of neuroscientific support for all of these ritual components, particularly breathing, embodied trance, like the Sufi spinning. I mean, whew, so many things. So I invite you to look at some of the supporting material on ritual on my site and to also look at the reverence book if you're interested in joining in ceremonial containers of gathering and having transcendent experiences. We're always hosting something like that. But today I want to introduce you now more formally to a wonderful woman who is a ceremonialist and has so many beautiful ideas on how we can gather together with more intentionality, more ritual, more meaning, and move through our lives in a more awake and aware manner. So Jess Magic. Jess is truly magic. I've met her so many times in different constellations of gatherings from 10 people to 1,000 people. And she has an undimmable light, completely vibrant, generous, loving energy. And she's going to tell us a little bit about how she came into that, about the internal guidance system, and about how to make all of your own gathering times more meaningful. Uh, I feel like what makes me me is uh, a really deep journey of, of trust and of listening and of making choices that in the practical mind might not make sense to most people, but I feel that my life has really, really around so many important corners, whether that be college or breakups or travel or letting go of businesses or starting new endeavors that I had no experience in. I think my journey has been one of a lot of of, of listening to my own inner guidance system and having a relationship with a guidance system that has been very impeccable, honest, and important for me to be guided by. I'm appreciating that you use the term internal guidance system. 
so many of us lose our sort of sense of self-reference and give up our power. So what does it mean to you to have a clear and integrous internal guidance system? My first memory of what that felt like was being five years old. I was raised by a Jewish mother and a Christian father. And and ever since I can remember, they always told me they wanted to expose me to both religions, but they wanted me to be able to choose what was right for myself. So I would go to synagogues and I would go to church with them. And then one day on Martin Luther King Day, I was five years old and I went to a church with my friend Colin and his dad. And this enormous, robust black gospel choir was singing. And as they were singing and feeling what they were singing about, I felt the presence of what one might call God or spirit in my entire five-year-old body. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that thing that they're feeling and that I'm feeling is what God is. That's the thing that that white guy on the pulpit is talking about when he says God. It's this feeling. And so I had my first experience of what I would call an embodied understanding of, it it was a direct experience of a feeling that I could map to a word that was being used. And from that point, I think that there was some awakening inside of me of, of an inner knowing. And so over the course of my life, when I refer to that internal inner guidance system, it's like an ability to track direct feelings in my body and map them to direction, like some kind of direction that I was meant to take, which I was able to differentiate from education or religion or some sort of like script there was, I was able to feel internally a difference. And so then when I would feel those inner directives that came from a feeling in my body that felt like it was in my cells, that felt like it was in the center of my heart, I started to learn how to pay attention to that and to track when that part of me was activated or feeling sensation. I started learning how to listen to that. And then the experience of my, of my life as I I started a nonprofit that was dedicated towards healing the root causes of sexual trauma, for instance. I I did that with no understanding of how to start a nonprofit, no training on, I wasn't yet trauma-informed facilitator or anything like that, but I just knew that I was supposed to do something in those realms. And then that whole journey started teaching me, well, if I want to prevent this, I need to teach people how to know what's a yes and what's a no in their body. I need to start helping people track boundaries that are being shown to them by their by their inner system. And so it just took me down a really long path of not only having that sort of natural awakening for myself, but also then deeply cultivating it so that I could teach it, so that I could deepen it inside myself. And then I think with something like that, the more that you pay attention and the more that you listen, the stronger that those cues become. And I think that's very, it's been very valuable for me, I can say. Oh, it's so nice, that moment of grace. I find that, you know, many people will have that and they'll just say, oh, it was easy for me, it should be easy for others. And they don't always go back through the process and deconstruct it so that it can be passed on. Uh, So thanks for doing that. And I wonder if you could tell us what are some signs uh, that you're moving in the right direction, that, that people are moving in alignment with their internal guidance system? So I I actually, anybody listening can even kind of play with this as I talk about it, but there was one exercise that I remember doing with high school and college students that was this 
practice of, I would bring them into a closed eye meditative state and then I would ask them, start to feel into someone or something in your life that is just a complete yes. That is just, it's, it's like if they ask you to hang out with them, everything inside of you says yes. If they, if they, if, if it's like a job opportunity or a dream that you have, everything inside of you says yes, lights you up. And then I would have people feel into their body cues. So people would say things like my, I feel like I'm taking deeper breaths. My shoulders are dropped down from my ears, my belly feels relaxed, my heart feels open. And then I would have them go into a closed eye experience of now feel something that's just not quite right. Either somebody or something someone said or an invitation that somebody made or a recent choice that you've made that's having you feel the no a no energy, like something's off, something's not right. And now track what you're feeling in your body. And then the students would say things like, I feel pressure on my chest. My breath is shorter. I feel nauseous. I feel my shoulders hunching and my heart going inside. I feel quiet. So they would just come up with all the, and it was different for different people. Not everybody has all the same cues, but then when you start to follow those cues, you can actually start to see how your body, how you have these somatic responses to something that is, you you know, to simplify it in those days, I was calling it just yes and no. That's a very uh, reduced way of, of looking at it, but like whether like aligned or out of alignment mm-hmm. or true or not true, or, you know, there's different ways that you can kind of frame it, but that was a, a bit of the simple practice. Yeah, we can set our own baseline. I like that you're giving guidance on what feels right, what feels stuck, what feels constipated. Yeah, exactly. When I first met you, it was at the Visionary Summit, and you were emceeing this giant event, and you were sort of wearing this red jumpsuit and super vibrant. And and then I've also seen you in other contexts, in Bali, holding space in smaller groups and smaller ceremonies, in intimate spaces. So you are really wonderful at holding in the appropriate way for different sizes of groups. Can you talk a little bit about holding ritual space? There's this this phrase that I feel like circulates amongst a lot of the medicine community and ceremonial community that life is ceremony, and I, I really do believe that. I think that for me, um, as a ceremonialist, as a space holder, as a facilitator, there's something about... Um, being able to create a field of intention. Sometimes people have all set an intention together. Sometimes people are at a conference and they all know at the very least that they want to learn something or network or something like that. Sometimes, you know, you're in an even deeper level of ceremony like a wedding where the intention is sacred union and belovedship or something like that. I think when you have the ability to create intentionality, context, And even sometimes from that guiding pillars or principles or values that you want to espouse inside of it, it starts to create a field of creativity where then the actions and the conversations and and then even the, you know, songs or facilitation start to lend themselves to realizing those intentions, those goals. And so I'm kind of taking the question in a little bit of a different direction, but I think that, you know, going back to ceremony and life as ceremony, there's this way that that ceremony to me is a lot about intentionality, like having some kind of an intention. And then from that, 
the creativity and the artistry of that is like all opening up to all the different ways and all the different modalities that that intention can be realized. And that's why I feel like a business conference can be a ceremony. A breakup can be a ceremony. It doesn't have to be, it can turn from a fight into a ceremony. Like it's wild to me when you start to put this frame onto things. How Like I've had in the middle of a fight with an ex, for instance, being like, wait, let's take a breath let's like regulate ourselves and let's turn this into a ceremony. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to express ourselves, but there's like a way that you can actually re-contain something to have it be so much more supportive to the actual intention. What's actually happening. Oh, I need to release energy. Okay, great. I could do that in a violent way, or I could do that in a way that is like, we're actually both doing this together and meeting Mm -hmm. the moment and getting everything we need, but it's not reactive. It's not unconscious. It's like just wrapping a layer of presence and consciousness to things that still allow for whatever needs to happen to actually happen. Well, there's a degree of awareness and knowing that you really need to release anything anyway. You know, I guess like, oh, I need to do a breathing exercise. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk a little bit more about ceremony. What are the elements in a successful ceremony? Intent, having a really strong intention. And that can be, you know, first and foremost by the people holding the ceremony. But then ideally, they're also including everybody else that's in that ceremony in it. And again, this can be done at scale or it can be done in a really small way. I think that um, permission and consent is really important. Mm. People need to, to some degree, know what they're saying yes to. I think there can still be elements of mystery and surprise and things like that that are can be really beneficial. Mm. But there's something about like, even if I'm hosting one of my soul salons or a music event, like I like people to know, like when people buy a ticket to my soul salon and they're going to they know that I'm going to be singing. They're consenting for me to be singing. They're consenting to be in a container where I'm going to be holding something. So there's something about that, that there's like a permission that's been granted. And I think that there's a way with a successful ceremony of looking at all the different nuances of what does that look like? And then I think that another important thing is presence. And this is a little bit what you and I were talking about yesterday ceremony, you know, I facilitate medicine ceremonies and um, music ceremonies and cacao ceremonies and, and wedding ceremonies and all kinds of ceremonies, but you can have an intention and you can set an agenda and you can have an amazing plan. And I think what makes a really good ceremony is having some space for emergence. Sometimes I call it space for grace. It's like, a musician having a perfect set list, but then somehow a war, you know, like what we're, this is what we're dealing with right now. But then you have the set list, you've been practicing it, but then a war breaks out that morning. Are you just going to plow through with your set list? Cause that's exactly what you practiced. Or are you going to allow for an emergent moment to open the space a little bit wider to maybe sing a song that you weren't planning and wasn't, isn't perfect, but it actually is a song of peace that supports the whole field in processing what's actually going on in real time. So I think there's something in a good ceremony that is really allows for the highest level of relevance to what the people are actually going through in their lives and what's happening in the world around us. And the other element that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before around that attunement and that inner guidance system, and this is something that some people naturally have, but it can also be cultivated, is that sort of empathic 
understanding of what a room needs. And this is a little bit of what you were seeing from me when we met in that visionary summit and I was emceeing, you know, there was, there was, I have this satchel kind of this back background satchel of like, okay, if an audience is starting to lose presence and they're, you know, the last topic was super heady and they're saturated, what can I do to create more space for receptivity so that the next person speaking is coming not into a full room that's dense, but is it coming into a room that has more, more receptivity. And then that's my, what I can do in that space is like have people breathe, shake their bodies, like have a moment to make sound, sing a song, like dance for a song, you know, just to like move or bring them into a meditation that helps them integrate and know what to even do with what they Mm. just heard. Mm. Um, So I think that there's, a lot of things like that, that when you're attuned, when you're present, when you have a little bit of that um, trust also in meeting what's actually here rather than driving an agenda. And I think that that goes, that that expands out to the ceremony of literally like global leadership. Like, Mm -hmm. are we just committed to driving agendas or are we paying attention to what the planet is saying? Are we paying attention to people who are in a deep space of despair or unrest and how can we allow things like that that are actually happening to inform pre-existing agendas in a way that can be more dynamic and holistic? I had a friend once who introduced me to the concept of the FRED, the frequency resonance energy dynamics, and that the job of a space holder is essentially to monitor that, to uh, notice when the energy is flagging and then lift it up, to notice when people's attention has faded, you know, basically to keep things moving. Okay, a couple more things about ceremony space. I want to make a distinction between performance and ceremony that, you know, there's really, it's a service role. And another thing, the responsibility of the participant in ceremony to really give themselves over to the facilitator. I, I think there's always that person or two people in a group who are in argument with the authority in the room, either because they don't have trust and authority or because they sort of feel unseen or unrecognized that they should be the one leading. So can you talk a little bit about the participant's role in a good ceremony? Yeah, it's I love that you brought that up. I mean, I've I've felt that so many times because I, I am a very sensitive being. So I, I can all I can always feel, especially in spaces of a hundred or around like, you know, seventy five to 150, I can feel the people that are in resistance. But, but also in a room of eight, you know, when you are running an online course or something, if there's one person that's a bit like shut down or checked out, it, it, it takes energy, it leaks energy right, from the coherence. Right, right. Yeah, participation, buy-in, consent, engagement is so important. And there, this is where I think that having a bit of a, like being attuned and trusting yourself is really important, but having that satchel of like, you know, I know people reflect me a lot. I don't actually think that I'm that funny of a person, but in these spaces, there's this like comedian that comes out of me because I think that a I don't take myself too seriously b if I play the wrong chord on a song or I forget a lyric or you know something weird happens like I'll I'll make fun of myself I'll tease the space I'll call out you know I think it's a really powerful thing if you know what the resistance is if you name the resistance you speak to it you're like I can imagine you know I, I joke about 
we were talking this last weekend about me being not two woos, but one woo, just one woo. But I'll tease myself around being like, yeah, and I'm sure you, some of you guys are wondering what's this hippie doing up here? You know, I'll whatever the thing is that I can kind of like play with that might be getting ahead of what they're thinking that might have them being resistant is something that I think helps a lot. I feel like another really amazing tool is that depending on what audience you're in, having somebody edify the process that's respected in that field. Like I've done ceremonies for Harvard professors and crypto, you know, wizards and things like areas that I'm not, it's not my zone of expertise. And I've had people in those fields that are bridge builders that are very respected that will give, that will edify the science behind what I'm doing, Mm. or they'll edify the like where this fits into the world of academia or politics or, you know, so sometimes having other people that build those bridges is very powerful. Ooh, these bridge builders do play a really important role. It's it's like if someone has an identity of themselves as a certain, say they're a material realist or a scientist and they rely on data, by acknowledging some of the data or some of those concerns, you really let people release their identity and then feel safer in being part of whatever's going on. It's it's super helpful. Mm. And then sometimes having um, another one of my little keys is that I call them, I, I personally call them priestess plants, but that wouldn't be the name that everybody would use. But it's like having people in the room that are just all in for whatever's happening. And those people that can kind of help lift that field of like somebody they were even if I am not able to give everyone permission where there's other people in different ways in their expression or their enthusiasm or their buy-in or their um, vulnerability to give other people permission you know I think there's so many different kinds of ceremony but sometimes there's a ceremony that's where people are making a prayer for their life or they're going through a deep healing and sometimes it's the that that first share that someone brings that is the real, real, where they let their guard down all the way and then everybody feels it because it's so undeniably authentic and so undeniably potent that it just melts the resistance or the kind of feeling of separation out of the room because it's it's almost so relatable. And I think that that's the other piece is relatability, authenticity. Mm-hmm. Those things are super important. Like I don't feel that it's very helpful to put myself on a pedestal or have leaders at this day and age that are over pedestalizing themselves. I think there's a, you know, you were reading me some of that beautiful work that you're doing in your, in your article that you're writing in your thesis that you're writing around circle-based learning and circle-based wisdom and circle-based leadership. And I think that there's also, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's certain times and places where it's important to have somebody on a pulpit or on a stage, but there's also an energetic that even if you're on a stage or literally on a pedestal, there's a way of lifting everybody up and having us all feel like we all are, are valuable here. We all have something. We all have an area um, to contribute and to give voice to. And what does that look and feel like? Well, my favorite part of getting together is when everyone can be authentic and real. Uh, so let's uh, talk about when we gather, particularly with our families you know, that season is coming up, what we can do about becoming more authentic and real and maybe creating space in ourselves for the people we love to be themselves, to evolve, to show up as themselves. 
Yeah, I think this is, it's such an interesting one. I mean, I've been blessed to participate in so many conscious gatherings or soul family gatherings mm-hmm. or intentional gatherings or elevated, ga- what, you know, whatever the thing is. And then, um, or, you know, big retreats and you have this feeling of like, oh yeah, we got this, like we're nailing it. And then that, that piece of like, and now we get to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever the thing mm-hmm. is, a birthday. So I do think that, you know, there's realms, different, different families have different layers of resistance or availability based on whatever their traditions are, their whatever their religions are, whatever their level of access and willingness to be vulnerable and real with each other are, whatever their tools are around availability for intentionality. And I think that one thing, definitely there's a way, like I think about it for me with my, with my parents. My, my parents are divorced, but my dad's side is pretty down for anything to be introduced it can't be taken too seriously. It has to have, if I take myself too seriously or seem too spiritual or anything like that, they it will they will reject it and kick it right out the door. But if I can come in with like silliness and playfulness, then I can get moments of real reverence where I've had my whole family literally in tears, healings between my brother and my sister where they're acknowledging each other and crying. But I had, if I had made it sound ahead of time like it was going to be a serious thing, like we we would have never got there. With my mom's side, my mom's Jewish, and there's such a resistance to, like even when I used to go home and ask if we could just hold hands and say thank you to the food, she had such a strong association and a negative association to being made to pray with Jesus when she was married to my dad because my dad's mom would make them do a whole thing around like Jesus Lord at the beginning of the and my mom's Jewish so she would always feel so offended and just like like she didn't belong you know going back to this but like like she she felt so out of place so even if I would ever ask to just have that moment it would have she'd have this association you know which I think a lot of people can probably relate to some level of religious trauma or something along those lines that would have them feel um like they don't want to even go step anywhere into a direction that might alienate themselves or someone else um, so I think in that type of a scenario for folks that are going home but want to bring some level of ceremony or gratitude, like getting permission from the people that are hosting, asking what would make it more fun and more intentional for them, what like kind of getting buy-in from the people that I think are hosting the experience is important so that they don't feel hijacked or taken over in a way, um, and getting into the, like a bit of a co-creation of like, Hey, what could we do? Cause it's, it's almost like, I'm kind of talking about thinking about this out loud, but it's almost like, can we think about the win-win? What do we all want here? Oh, we all want the family to have a good time. Oh, we all want the family to bond. Oh, we all, what, how could we make that happen? Would you be open to having a moment where we all just go around the table and share about something that we're grateful for before we eat? Or, you know, so I think there's ways of kind of establishing sameness. Well, maybe we'll do a little role play here. Hey, I could call my my mom or my daughter, whoever I'm going to see, and be like, hey, Ma, you know, what is the the most joyful holiday you can imagine? What would you really like? And I could share my desires, which are things like, I love spending time outside in nature and being part of that wonder with people. I love show and tell when one person gets the chair and they can talk about their lives or share things that I, they've been up to. And 
I love cooking together and I love saying grace and sort of invite them to also talk about what they love and then together we can create uh, some kind of a family ceremony or family ritual that meets everybody's needs. But I think the imagining part is really exciting. That's that's the beginning of, we may not call that a ceremony, but that's the beginning of like creating mm. a ritual or creating a, like a ritual of sharing, just bringing more creativity, mm. bringing more intentionality into those gatherings. Because I think that our our families, a lot of times, you know, especially a lot of times the the mothers, the fathers that are the ones that are hosting or holding these gatherings, maybe there's just all they can really pull off is just getting the food together and all this stuff. And so it's like whoever has, if there's other people that are traveling in that have a little bit of extra energy to contribute a moment and to get buy-in, to feel like it's a co-creation, to feel like it's not going to overtake the entire time, but you're going to have one moment. And most likely that's going to be the highlight moment of the, of the whole thing. And, and then I think it's different when you're hosting at your home, you know, I think that's like kind of what I was saying before with the soul salon, like there's a way that people are consenting to be in your field. So if you introduce something, it's going to go a lot easier because people are like okay this is the, how they're this is how Christine's going to do it in her home when we go there we're going to do this thing we're taking our shoes off yeah, we're this all you're all holding hands and that's just all how it's going to be and it's just like everyone's ready for it they just know that they're like but I need to eat oh I want to tell you about this event that we had last Valentine's Day at the house a sensory salon and the power of co-creation like for that event Everyone was invited to bring something that they thought would delight people. And I have this one particular friend, Anatoly, who is such an Epicurean. He's so delightful. And every time he comes, he makes it a point to bring something that's just super charming, whether that's a handmade nipples of Venus chocolate, or in this case, at the Valentine's Day salon, he had gone out and searched these this perfect jam and gave everybody a little taste on a spoon with their eyes closed. Somebody brought scents and did a tour of perfumes and somebody did a sounding and stood in the middle of the room and had everyone make tones. So when people were co-creating, they really felt like they belonged and it changed the tone versus coming to be a consumer of information. They were a co-creator. Yes, it's so it's so powerful. It's it's like and and to me, I'm always going micro, macro, micro, macro. And when I think about that, like in a way it's like our responsibility right now to encode and support with the with the with the culture of belonging in our own mm-hmm. families and friendship circles. Like how can we do that more and how can that ripple out more? And I do believe that there's something about the human spirit that ultimately wants to be known. It wants to know itself. It wants to, there's a part of all of us that is creative, that has some element of just magic to it, whether that is, you know, and then it's all different and being able to feel the beauty of like, oh, the thing that you bring, this Epicurean brother that has this like ability to find the finest, you know, gems and items versus like the one that can just sing the song that everybody knows and have that moment versus the one that is going to, you know, just... Or the electricity or whatever. I mean, somebody has to do that. Yeah, totally. Solid totally. work. Uh, my partner is 
very happy to be the guy standing in the kitchen and kind of keeping the dishes moving. He he calls it the kitchen confessional, where one by one, everyone sort of comes up and hangs out with him and tells him what's really going on. So he gets to be part of things while still honoring his need for one-on-one connection. So, you know, all roles are required. It's so beautiful. And that's the thing is that I, I do think in the realm of belonging, like everybody to have their little thing, their little moment or their little role that they play and then when it comes together like this is this I love music as a metaphor but this is where you've got the symphony of an experience because everyone's playing their own instrument in their own way and it's not all necessarily at the same time or the same moment at the same frequency or level of sound like some are really soft and subtle but it's still a role. I I always tell people in my circles, sometimes the one who's leading, the most powerful leader is the one who's the most present and receptive. The deepest listener is the the biggest leader in certain moments. So it's not always the one who's emceeing or facilitating or hosting or singing or whatever. There's other roles. And I think exploring that and liberating that is powerful. There's one thing uh, I want to bring into this conversation about the nature of creativity and how it is when you are closest to being divine source mm-hmm. yourself. You're replicating creation. In some schools, like in the ancient Tantra traditions, the entire job of you as a human is to experience and see the world in all of its complexity and to create what you're here to create and show that back to divinity. Like, this is one aspect of your world. Like, you are sitting in that chair, you're seeing a different view of the world mm-hmm. than I'm sitting. A lot's overlapping, but it's not exactly the mm-hmm. same. And so your prayer practice is actually about reflecting back and showing back to creation what's possible. And that sometimes you can show it to other people, but if you can't show it to other people, you can like you can give it to God. Yes. You know, in that way. Like anyway, let's go back to creativity and ceremony and ritual. Let's talk about specific times other than the traditional ones like marriages and stuff that you're called on to offer ritual. And and maybe ones that you're not called on, but you think would be a great idea. Yeah, I love that. Well, one that I think is very, very special is um, the first drink of water that you have in a day. Mm. (laughs) There's so many things that we are so small that that we take for granted. There are a million things, like the ritual of breath. The, just the fact that we don't even have to think about it. And <sighs> sometimes I'll, I'll do, I'll be in a space and I'll just randomly be guided to just have people take the most pleasurable, luscious breath they've ever taken. And we'll make a, all of a sudden it will become a whole multi-minute thing where we're teeing it up and we're building up the suspense to get this breath that is the most pleasurable breath. I mean, it's like, and I can, you, it's, it can be really playful, but it can also be really deep of like, oh my gosh, we take nothing for granted. That first sip of water, that, that where you imagine where that water came from and then you connect it to all of the waters of the planet and then you can imbue it with all of the intentionality of your day knowing that that water is about to commune and flow through your body and then flow out of your body and go somewhere else and become water in a different way. I mean, those are some of the, I call it, um, I was writing a book um, called Philosophies of a Hardest and that chapter was from mundane to magic and it was like, you know, even making a bed, like I travel a lot. So I remember this morning where I was making the bed and I was imagining 
whoever was going to sleep in it next, having the best dreams that they could possibly have. And I was literally with every fold of the sheet and the fluff of the pillow, I was just and like praying into the next person who I didn't know who was going to sleep there, having the best dreams ever that would nourish their life. And so those are the ones that I would say are like some fun kind of mundane ones. And when you think about all of those examples, it's like, it's infinite, all of the little rituals and ceremonies and moments that you could have. I think some of my favorite, uh, there's two that I'll share that have been in more of my role as a community mama. One, I've, I've facilitated a handful of uncoupling ceremonies that, you know, it's it's very powerful to officiate weddings. I love it. And it's also extremely powerful and also often very overlooked to facilitate completion ceremonies for people um, and support them with their uncoupling process and releasing resentments and expressing themselves and sharing what they'll miss in an intentional way and be also celebrated in the harvest of what they've learned in their relationship and to not feel like the ending is a failure. And I think that we can have this idea in our society that a relationship is successful if it's long or a relationship is successful if it's everlasting. But a relationship can also be successful if we learned a lot about ourselves, if we learned about being a lover or being a partner or being a better person or what we, who we are or what we like and don't like. There's so many other metrics of success. And so completion ceremonies can be places where we can actually feel celebrated for not the the failure of a relationship, but for all the things that were successful about it and even the choice to um, separate at a certain time when the relationship is no longer serving each person's highest growth and evolution. So I think that there is a way that we sometimes think ceremony is about birth and the beginnings, but we don't do as much around death and the endings and the completions and the transitions. And I think that there's a, a, that's been some of the most rewarding work that I've done in ritual space and ceremony space in intentional gathering spaces around those types of things. Do people get witnessed in those things like they do in a wedding? Yeah. I've done ones that are in front of a larger community and I've done ones that are in front of just a smaller, very, very intimate circle. And then I've done some that are just private where it's just the three of us. Because in the original wedding ceremony, you witness with the intention to support people keeping their marriage strong. Mm -hmm. and, And when the inevitable troubles come, you know, but we all know when our friends are having trouble, but it's held so secretively so often, like, oh, those two are really at it. And the idea that you would also invite the community into a shared grief, a shared acknowledgement, a shared goodbye, and then there would be clarity on everyone's current status also would free both of those parties up and and the stuck energy in the community of worry. It's It's been, I mean, I've personally had two massive breakups that were with, I've always been a community leader and they were both very public relationships where the community around us was very invested in our love and also impacted and benefited a lot from our love. Mm. The, the way that those both ended left a lot of, it was chal- really, really challenging for our, not just us personally, but for our communities. And so being able to help support in that being different. And then also, there's also ways, like there's intentional communities like Dominhor and Tamara that have such amazing practices around 
they'll bring the whole community together annually to check in with a relationship to be like, hey, here's what we're loving about your relationship. Here's the areas where we could see you growing. Here's the challenges and the patterns that it seems like you guys are having a really hard time breaking. And they'll have ways that the community can get involved in people's relationships to be of support or to give them counsel about how they can continue to move forward or how it might be time for them to unwind. And there's really, really cool things that can be done also inside of a relationship that's not completing, um, where you can do a completion ceremony around a dynamic while still staying together, but just complete the dynamic. Really, That's really potent. Also, you're getting at this thing where the community is taking on its right role again in uh, mutual governance and co-regulation Yes. instead of like professionalizing it and you go off into a room with a person you're paying to deal with the common concerns of being in a relationship. Like I'm learning so much from you, even when you're just talking about the simplicity of enchanting the bed maker. Yeah. <laughs> like that must create a tone of being alive. Yeah. And it's very sparkling. You can change, you can be present with the bed making so you're not just like, going off into fantasy land, totally. completely disconnected from what you're doing, which is also easy. Yeah. Like you're just kind of going through the motions, yeah. cleaning up, but you can imbue it with meaning, yeah. playfulness. That's so, so cool. Yeah. And like just getting that little hack, it's like, wow, I wonder what else I do that I could imbue with magic. Like it's the same thing with relationship. Like how are some people holding a particular difficulty or that they even are, you know, and that there's some, there's ways in the knowledge base in the community that you could bring into uh, awareness and also that like whatever's going on with you people know like even if they can't articulate it energetically they perceive it and they often know more about you or your relationship than you do gossip tendencies to contributive constructive coherent ways of i love alliteration but ways of, of serving you know it's like if we're all like yeah what's up with Joe and Susan, like they're always blah, 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 blah. You know, that can be something that can happen inside of a community. Or we can be like, yeah, I've been noticing that. And at least four other people have also mentioned that to me. I wonder if this is something that we find a way to bring to them in a loving way so that we can reflect this and share the impact that this has on us as friends. And, you know, there's so many ways that we can bring more ritual ceremony intentionality into community it's like an intervention without the confrontation yes like an interupliftment totally and and how often is it that people are like uh yeah it's not fun to have them at it we don't want to really have them they're fun by themselves but we don't really want to have them together because they're always fighting or this or that there's impacts that 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 we have that our ways of being have both in relationship and individually on our communities that affect you know going back to that feeling of belonging that have us feeling these underlying feelings of like oh i'm not welcome or i don't belong or they don't like my relationship or what then we can make up these stories but there is such a simple way of shifting that tendency around and having it be totally constructive and useful and bonding and building of intimacy and so i'm very passionate about that like I, I used to want to have a podcast called Reimagine, and I'm sure there's a million podcasts now that was, that are called Reimagine. But back in the day, it wasn't such a common word, and I wanted to do Reimagine everything, like Reimagine relationships, Reimagine education, Reimagine breakups, Reimagine sex, Reimagine you know just all these things. But I think that around this topic, there is something even inside of community dynamics, um, and 
mundane chores and all mm-hmm. the, that we can, we really can reimagine so many things and have them be all of a sudden turned from either a chore or something that we're dreading or something that's taboo or shameful or feels like it's done in isolation to something that's actually at the forefront. And this is when culture starts to shape through relational practices and community practices. I want to bring it back to what you said in the very beginning, which is that your body knows when it's joyful Mm -hmm. and your body also knows when it's not. Yeah. And so when does something need reimagining? Probably in the contracted state. So you can use that as a pointer to what to invest in. Exactly. And I'm so glad you brought it back to that because it's like the body does know anytime you're feeling resistant, if you're feeling resistance to going to someone's dinner party, why is that? Is it like, because you're you, one cue could be that your body needs rest. So it's just like, what's a yes for you is to rest and ground. Another is that someone's going there that, that you don't jive with. And why is that? And is there a way that like, I mean, yes, of course you can just say no or deal with it, or it might be a cue that your body is giving you into something that you can actually bring into right relationship. And, and that's the you know, the, the, the project that I'm working on right now has to do with right relationship because I look at all these areas that we're talking about and like, oh, am I in right relationship with myself? Am I listening to my body? Am I in right relationship to my family? Is there some way that I could bring more expression there or hear their voices more or heal this thing or, you know, just have a more dynamic experience with my Mm -hmm. family? Am I in right relationship to my community? Am I nourished and fulfilled? Am I growing as a person? And am I, am I being seen? Do I belong? Is there a way that I can create more space for belonging for myself and others? You know, all these things, then world, you know, am I in right relationship to, I mean, wow, world is like a whole huge one. Um, But am I in right relationship to both my practices around how I'm caring for the planet? Am I in right relationship with how am I looking at all these different polarized aspects? Is that, is that truly right for me? Am I, is it, does it feel right to align in this direction or can I open more or can I find more compassion or can I get more into sacred activism? Like, am, do I feel complacent? Am I in right relationship with how I'm participating? I find it easy to have compassion and more and more to not get enrolled in, in the drama. Mm-hmm. And for a while I thought that maybe I was just unempathic or that I'd lost my ability to really care. But you live through enough cycles and you see them repeating over and over and you're like, you're making that story. You're creating that reality or you're caught up in a collective creation of reality. Mm-hmm. And when you when you really get to the point where you can't have compassion for the other side, that's when you know you're completely in your own story. And if you're in your own story, there's no possibility for growth. It's all stuck, mm-hmm. right? And so we want to be in this place of like, it, if, if my compassion for the other side is gone please call my call that interior upliftment on me so that and I just feel like there are certain situations where there's just no availability for growth Mm -hmm. and so you do intangible practices of like holding the space for peace holding the space for grounding you talk to people you don't take sides you activate for justice but um less and less like getting embroiled in the story of picking sides. Yeah, I I feel you so deeply on that. I I don't feel I I've had a very interesting journey around my own personal relationship with taking sides where I found myself in the middle of very conflictious situations with a weird understanding of both sides 
from a very young age. And so it's sort of been something I've personally grown up with is some extra level of uh, understanding of all different sides. When when the Me Too movement was happening, I wrote a, a poem called Both Sides of the Wound. And being somebody that's come from, I was a social justice warrior-esque for healing sexual trauma and things. So I was very deeply steeped in that world. Um, but I wrote this poem called Both Sides of the Wound. And I was like, oh, I'm probably going to get torn up on Facebook for this poem because I'm speaking to like all sides, where there's wounding on all sides and there's wounding at a societal level. And I think that, you know, something that I talk to folks about when they're going really, really deep into that collective pattern or that collective trauma in a way that's actually disabling their own life is we need to be responsible for how much information we take in and what our bodies and minds are actually able to integrate and assimilate and then what we can actually even do with that information. I think there's times where we are just taking in so much more than we ever could have the capacity to actually do anything productive about for ourselves, let alone anybody else. I think there's a another layer of tracking that might be really valuable at this particular moment in time for people around what they're choosing to participate in and how they're choosing to, to inform themselves. Yeah, I'm noticing the selective attention quality also is very apparent right now. <laughs> Recording at a time when the Israeli-Palestine conflict of October 2023 has reinitiated. But what I find shocking is that we've had 200,000 deaths so far this year before this conflict started in Ukraine, Russia, Maghreb, Myanmar, that are also part of state-sponsored conflicts. And a year ago, everybody was waving those flags. But that's ongoing. That's that's incredible to me that we've just forgotten about the, the latest one. Uh, has replaced all understanding that it's still happening on the energetic level, uh, not that far away in another country. And uh, that we hear it, we get all caught up in the drama, we forget the that it's go, it's ongoing all the time, we return to our lives. And that there seems to be like a need to say, I'm not going to get caught up in the drama of this conflict, but what I am going to do is to work as a practice for my life for peace every day and it doesn't matter where it's at and that that's m more sustainable because it's not hijacking my nervous system mm -hmm. or the collective nervous mm -hmm. system but that's the way that I've been holding it um, and when you talk about bringing it back into like family relations or totally 100 percent. yeah it's a there's a there's so much to track and so much to pay attention to and I think that just finding making sure that we're doing everything we can to be mm. stable and centered inside of ourselves so that whatever choices we're making are mm. coming from a place of as much clarity as possible yeah mm. so maybe we could close with uh, some thoughts on living a more enchanted connected life and also on where people can find you <sighs> honestly as much as possible find time to sing dance pray breathe and get in nature it's just those things are these ancient singing and dancing and being in nature are these ancient, ancient birthright practices that our ancestors have been doing no matter where they are in the world. And I think that those types of practices really help us get back in touch with something that is very ancient and very natural inside of ourselves that there's a quote that I heard Zach Bush say on an interview once that he said, perhaps the most 
beautiful thing that humans have ever done and perhaps the only thing they've done that hasn't caused harm to nature but has actually embellished it is to sing songs and then dance to the songs that they created. Yeah. And I just thought that that was such a powerful quote. So I I know some of you out there are not, maybe don't consider yourself a singer or a dancer, but I, I, if you do consider yourself a human, then you're probably some degree of a singer and a dancer. <laughs> so I think that in terms of living a more magical life, that's definitely helpful for me personally, I lead ceremonies, I lead retreats and events, I lead a program called Free Your Voice that helps people tap into those parts of themselves if they feel stuck around using your voice as a tool to create magic, express yourself, create poems and songs and stories and messages, um, and do that deeper embodiment work. Um, and then I also have a project that I've recently started called Mawali that is really dedicated to everything we've been talking about around living a life of more ceremony, more fulfillment, more meaning, more intentionality, more ritual, and alongside of it, all of the different embodiment practices that help us start to be able to create from scratch, so to speak, or to be able to use what I call the raw materials of our life, of what's happening around us, of our emotions, of what's happening with the planet, of the crazy wildness of our own family dynamics, and to be able to create art and beauty and uh, ritual out of those things. And that's called muwali, which is the Balinese term for you're welcome. But the deeper spiritual meaning of Mawali is sacred reciprocity. It's to be in the walking your welcome and the gratitude of spirit, nature, and um, all life on earth. So that's the name of this project. And um, yeah, just so grateful for you, Christine, for being such a magical creator yourself and and for having me here and for, for all the beings that are listening out there ready to rock more ceremonial ways of living in their lives. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to host a family for the holiday I'd love to hear if you incorporate any of these ideas into your planning. Um, so get in touch. Handle? My Instagram is at yesjessmagic. Yes. Yes. Just say yes. <laughs> Thank you so much to Jess Magic. You have magic in you also. The infulgent creative light lives in you. What can you do to make these holidays the best? you've ever had the most connected the most attuned the most playful the most pleasurable you can find links to all of the things we talked about in the show notes and if you'd like to reach out you can find me on instagram at the.rose.woman please visit rosewoman.com for holiday shopping and radiantfarms.us for gummy treats that you can put into people's stockings both of these organizations have deep missions to bring plant-based healing to the body, mind, and spirit. And I know you will love our products. Thank you so much. Be beautiful. Beautiful.